So I want to just further a little bit more what I was talking about last night um, in talking about um, that an awakened life is essentially an awakened heart. And these kinds of talks are a little bit less fun for me because they require me to talk a little bit more about my experience and my suffering and my confusion, all of which is alive right now, um, rather than leaning on... It's kind of... It can be easy to lean on the Dharma in the sense that there's all these fabulous lists and there's all these suttas and there's all these teachings that are intellectually stimulating and so on and so forth, that it's sometimes a little bit easier. I find my tendency is a little easier to lean on that because it's more comfy. But the Buddha doesn't really do comfy. Um, and interestingly enough, I had a very difficult afternoon. I'm sure you did too. <laughs> It's like when you're sitting retreat, you want to be teaching the retreat. And when you're teaching the retreat, you want to be sitting the retreat. You really just can't win. And I was talking to Eileen about this. We had a meeting with some of you who, who this has been your first retreat. And I noticed that I have a heaven to see to do these kind of meetings. And now I remember why. Because you get your talks kind of ironed out and most of today I was like, I had it all worked out in my head and I'm going to talk about this and talk about that. And then you hear what everybody has to say and has to share and talking about what's going on. And you're like, yeah, I can't talk about any of that. <laughs> and um, so I just want to read this little small piece from uh, this book that some of you may have read for the course, Boundless Heart, which I think is really the best Dharma book on the Brahma Viharas written by Christina Feldman. It's actually a nice short book. And the concluding chapter is actually ironically called An Awakened Heart, An Awakened Life. And she writes, At the heart of all the Buddhist teachings, there lies a singular message. An awakened heart. Unshakable liberation is the goal of the path. The Buddha was little interested in metaphysical debate or transient transcendence experience. When he got up from the Bodhi tree on the eve of his awakening, he went forth into the world, guided by compassion, to encourage others to come to the same liberating insights that he had come to understand. Freedom, he taught, was firmly rooted in the ground of integrity. Our mind could be trained to be a reliable friend, free of proliferation and confusion. Our heart could be able to abide in immeasurable kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. In this inner climate, profound insights would be revealed. An awakened heart is the embodiment in an awakened life, imbued with mindfulness, care, and respect. So I like that she immediately points to the fact that the Buddha wasn't interested in metaphysics. He wasn't interested in transcendence. He wasn't interested in what we maybe would think of as enlightenment. That really the whole ground of everything is rooted in integrity. And so as I was walking back to my cabin after the meeting, utterly confused, <laughs> trying to figure out what would be appropriate I had this really big sense of 
We talked about it at the beginning, but just how hard to ignore, how odd it is that we're actually here right now, isn't it? With all that's gone on in the world. And uh, some of you were saying early on when we first got here that this is the most social event you've done in two years. And as soon as we get here, we're like, okay, everybody stop talking. Don't look at anybody. Put away your phone. It's a little bit weird. And I was also really realizing one of the things that I think I've been in denial about is I feel pretty homeless in the Dharma. And maybe some of you feel that way too. Feel pretty, pretty homeless in the sense of in most circumstances there would be a, a colleague I could reach out to or other people on the teaching team even though I have Eileen. But just really feeling there's this weird balance between feeling the sadness and the loneliness and the kind of homelessness of really not having anything that would even resemble a Dharma home or a Dharma community really at all. And then at the other side of the coin feeling inspired and encouraged and confident that in, in some sense I, I've gone what the Buddha calls are apachata, which means independent of others in the teachings. And so there's this weird thing where we do need to be alone. We need to learn how to be alone. We also need to learn how to be with others. And we need to be able to be alone with others, which is kind of what we are right now. And I was very lucky to be able to get my friend Vinnie Ferrara on the phone. Some of you know Vinnie. And ironically, I said, I said, yeah, I'm doing this retreat. I said, I'm kind of freaking out because I have to give this Dharma talk and I gave one last night and I think it was good. I was like, I just got this wave of doubt and insecurity. He goes, me too, bro. He goes, I'm driving to San Francisco right now to give a talk to my group that I haven't done live in two and a half years. I was like, oh, really? That's like happy. He's like, I'm on the Bay Bridge, Bay Bridge right now. <laughs> so it was nice to connect with him and be able to... Uh, it felt so good to be like, oh, wow, Vinny's going to do his group. Vinny's still doing his group. I'm sort of still doing my group. And he was such an important teacher and really still a very important person to me, even though we haven't been as connected as I would have liked. And then it puts us in this awkward thing of this word that I don't really like so much because I've been, well, for reasons that are probably obvious, this word sangha or community. And really this word sangha, to use it in the context that we use it in over here doesn't really quite work because it really just means the monastics. The monastic community historically is the sangha. And we don't really have that over here. I think what we have, or what we can have, that would be the most accurate kind of synonym for that is this word they use, kalyanamita, which means good friend or spiritual friend. Interestingly enough, mita is the same as metta. So good friend. So that word kalyanamita and metta, they're the same thing. It's a, it's a kindness. And the thing that's so hard is you... Really, if we're honest, you kind of have to handpick, don't you? It would be, it, it, we think about it because we're so used to joining things in our culture. It's like, you know, you go join the local gym or you go join the local this or the local that. Or you go join the local Buddhist Sangha community. And there's an, maybe an implicit understanding that 
you know, that they're trustworthy people and that you can trust everybody in the room and they're all like-minded. And that's not really true, I don't think. I think we have to be careful. And then that brings us to this interesting also term that when the Buddha refers to himself in the pages of the Pali Canon, he always refers to himself, not always, but mostly as the Tathagata, which usually loosely translates as one who has gone forth. One who has gone forth from home into homelessness. And I think that we need to think about that in a broader sense. If he didn't just become a homeless person, I think that because we think of ancient India, we think about a monk with a bowl and a robe. But I think we all do this. You know, we do this when we're in our late teens, early 20s, we, or even earlier for some of us. We, we leave our homes and we kind of, it's the sense of leaving your home, your, where you grew up, maybe your family, the household, and you kind of go out into the world. And there's a, there's a as Carl Jung calls it, there's a process that we individuate we kind of become the Tathagato. Another way to say that would be to try to become the true person. We try to, try to develop and understand who do we really want to be? How do we want to be? And the thing that's so problematic for so many of us is we, we try to find validation for who we want to be or who we think we should be in the way other people perceive or think about us. And for many of us, that's a long, confusing, somewhat painful road. And then we come into a practice like this, and we find that we're entering into what I really feel the Dharma is, and that's a relational Dharma. That really your primary relationship is the relationship you have with yourself. And honestly, what really happens when we sit quietly and close our eyes? What really happens in the privacy of your own mind? And that is a accumulation of how we feel about ourselves. A lot of that is just the conditioning of the society and the culture that we grew up in. A lot of it's our parents, our family, coaches, teachers. You realize you have all these characters you know, inside of your mind that you can't disperse which, which is me, which is not me. What is this? this is kind of a big mess. And so we have this slow, slow process of trying to become the true person. And then sometimes we get lucky and we do meet people along the way. We try to find other people who are like-minded. It's a hard a hard thing to cultivate. And it's not something that's really offered so much in our society or our culture. It's hard to find. It's hard to find that. Some of us find that, you know, in a Dharma community, if we're lucky. Many of you, myself included, find that in the 12-step world. That's one, that's one of the most, really, probably one of the most successful anarchist movements on the planet. You know? And you can just go in there and, 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 and it's almost encouraged and welcome to become the true person, to be authentic. It's like you're allowed to talk about how hard it is or how hard it's been. Not a lot of places like that. Usually we find ourselves 
as I have also, in a small room with somebody who's we're talking to to the tune of $250 an hour with a small little noise machine outside the door so nobody can hear. You ever been in that room? Like, what is that weird little white thing on the floor? It's a noise machine so nobody hears what you're saying. And so I've talked about this before, and I'll talk a little bit more about this, is this idea of awakened heart, awakened life, is for most of us, I think, a process of what we would call chitta vimutti, which is a liberation of the heart, of the heart-mind, which is a liberation of dharma through relationship, not just with ourselves, but with others, with the world. It's a very different, I think it's a very different dharma practice, dharma path, than the traditional Buddhist path of monasticism, which is much more of what's called panyavamuti, or liberation through wisdom. Because they've, they've chosen to not deal with money, to not deal with sexuality, to not... There's a choice, a very concrete choice, and a choice that I actually greatly respect. There's a choice, and it's almost... Uh, one thing I like about the later schools of Buddhism, in particular the Mahayana tradition, is one of the pushbacks was they thought the Theravada tradition or this kind of, with a too much of, uh, I'm all in it for myself. Liberation or bust. You know? I'm not going to let other people get in the way of my liberation practice. A very isolated kind of experience. In the Mahayana tradition, with the Bodhisattva vow, and really was, was, a, was the first movement in the Buddhist tradition that was more of a social engagement, that was more uh, out of compassion for others. And they went so far to the extent, as many of you know, the Bodhisattva vow, that I'm not going to be liberated until all living beings are, other, are liberated first. Like, wow. That's a little too far for me, actually. But that's, that was a a reaction and a response to this isolated experience that we, that we often find. And I don't know about you, have you ever noticed how hard it is to just sit alone quietly in your house or apartment? Has anybody noticed, just being in the room for the last couple of days, that I find that I practice with more sincerity when there's other people in the room? Do you find that? I'm like, well... If you're doing it, it's almost like positive peer pressure. If I'm sitting quietly in my house, I'll totally get up before the bell rings. I'll never do that in the Dharma hall unless I really got to go to the bathroom or something. And so when, when the, 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 what got buried in the tradition over years was, of course, Panyavamuti, liberation through wisdom, got elevated as kind of the, the, the ultimate goal and the real thing, and this Chittavamuti kind of got downgraded. But in the original text, they're really much seen as, as two paths. And I would argue, and many others would argue, that the Chittavamuti liberation practice was really something that the Buddha had designed and developed for those people who didn't want to join the monastery. And this goes all the way back to ancient India. Those people who, who were potters or people who grew food, who were farmers, who were hunters, 
who were all kinds of different things, who had families and had children and actually were interested in being in community. They were interested in being in society, which is a very relational thing. Very relational thing. And the thing that's sort of funny for me is that what I find myself teaching now is exactly the teachings I most ran from when I first entered the practice. Back in, back in the day, in the mid-90s, when I was sitting at IMS, they, some of you probably have sat retreat schedule, there was like that four o'clock meta-sit. Are you familiar with the four o'clock meta-sit? I wouldn't go in that room. I wouldn't go near that room. I would go outside and drink a huge Earl Grey with as much milk and honey as I could get into that cup. And it was mostly because, it, it was interesting because I would hear the Dharma talk, Stephen Smith and Michelle McDonald would give these beautiful, heartfelt talks in the Brahma Viharas on metta, on loving kindness. But when I had to sit down to do it, it was excruciating. And, when I, and it was confusing too because it wasn't that I hated myself. It wasn't like that so much. It was just sort of like raw grass-fed, organic hatred. I just hated. I didn't even need an object. It was that pure. I don't like this. I don't want to be here. I don't want to do this. And I avoided it for years. It wasn't until years later on, maybe 20 years later, when I started working with, with Against This Dream and Noah and Vinny, who really kind of, I realized that, that, that one little hint I can give you about this is whatever practice you despise the most is the one you should be doing. People say, oh, I like, you know, mindfulness of the body. I'm like, you need a different practice then. <laughs> <coughs> And if we can really ascribe to the idea of polarity, which is the thing, is that one of the things that I learned directly and then also through the teachings, and I wish I'd gotten it right away, is that a lot of times when we start to cultivate a practice early on and we don't have a lot of skill or a lot of momentum or a lot of uh, access, really, we often when we try to cultivate something like kindness, what happens is the opposite of that arises. And that's just kind of the, the nature of things. That's very common. That's really what polarization is. It's that you, you, a lot of times you're trying to do something and what you're seeing is the opposite. You know, you're trying to cultivate concentration and you become really distracted. You try to cultivate forgiveness and you just think about all the resentments you have. You try to cultivate something like kindness and you just see. And that's actually helpful. Because we see, okay, well, there's obviously, A, there's some work here to do. And there's a, there can be a sense of how do I learn how to 
again, live into a mind, a psychological, emotional environment that I actually would like to live inside of. Because you do know, and I'm sure you're learning now very much uh, in a great way, that you really do live in your mind. Right? And so if we can awaken this heart, we can awaken this mind. In the, the teachings uh, on the Brahma Vihara, so talking a little bit about the Brahma Vihara heart, I think one of the things that's been challenging as these teachings came down is I, I sometimes just wish there was a different term that they came up with. Brahma Vihara heart. And, and the reason why we have this word, we also have uh, some traditions call them the four measurables, the Brahma Viharas, the divine abodes. I don't think any of these words quite capture. But if you went back to the time of the Buddha, one of the things that people would say, because it was a, as he grew into his culture, it became very Brahmanical, Brahmanical society, and one of the niceties things that they would say, um, you know, somebody sneezes, we say, God bless you, right? We don't even know why we say it, we just falls right out. But they would say, may you dwell with Brahma. It would be like something to say to somebody on the streets, it would be like a nice thing to say, may you dwell with Brahma. And the Buddha, what he did, and he, he did this often, is he would take an idea, and he would say, oh, no, no, that's not what it means, it means this, actually. And, and so Brahma Vihara, hard to dwell with Brahma in the colloquial sense of the language of the time would really mean to be with God, to be one with God. And he was trying to point that the greatest human potential, the greatest capacity that we have as human beings is to dwell or to abide. Vihara just means to dwell or to abide in a heart and mind that is imbued with kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. And what he was saying, he's like, this is the embodiment of human perfection. This is what we are trying to do. We're not trying to be one with the universe. We're not trying to understand the ultimate nature of reality. We're not trying to do that, although the Buddhist traditions picked up those ideas long after he died. But he was really trying to say that uh, an awakened being is an awakened person who lives and dwells in this kind of heart. And not only that, but it's also a pretty good diagnostic map for practice. If we get out of the language, the bulky language of Brahma-vihara and think about them as heart practices, or probably if I was teaching in a classroom in a secular context, really what they are, they're relational mindfulness practices. They're, they're the relationship side of mindfulness. And so the theory, the general idea, of course, is that we, um, when we look at the human experience, we want to try to bring this boundless or unconditional quality of metta and friendliness towards everything, which sounds like a pretty lofty goal. But it can be done. And I notice this a lot, too, in just the way that I interact with other people. 
Especially right now in our society, in our world right now, this is so important. Especially for those of us who take the practice seriously. Because I, you know, I think I've told this story before, but, you know, during COVID, it would, you know, I would go, I live in a small town, you know, I would walk into the Napa Auto Parts store to get some stuff for my truck. And, you know, the guy working at the little local Napa Auto Parts store in my small town is probably on the red side of things and maybe would make a comment about those people and their masks and their vaccines and, you know, these kinds of comments. You know, and I could automatically see myself elevate into a kind of sense of contempt. Now, in a, in a secular context, in an emotional context, really the, the enemy to every Brahma-vihara in the most destructive emotion in the human body, the human mind is contempt, which is a sense of a, an assumption of a moral superiority. So as soon as I'm better than you, loving-kindness metta is gone. Nowhere to be found. Right, so the question is, you know, the, the equanimity, the wisdom can be, okay, can I disagree with this person? Yes. Can I think this person's ideas are unliberated and foolish? Yes. I can have all of that going on in the back of my mind. Can I hold that and also be kind and friendly to this person? I can do that. It feels weird. It feels inauthentic. But I think if we take the practice seriously, we have to understand that that's what we're being asked to do. It's, you shouldn't really pat yourself on the back to be, for being friendly with the people who agree with you. You shouldn't get a prize for that. Right? Be friendly, try to be friendly and kind to the people who see things differently than us, who hold different views. And, and it's also tragic in the sense that I, as somebody who's been in Buddhist communities for more of my life than I haven't been, the Buddhist community, the kind of Dharma practitioner, can assume that we have the more superior, more intelligent view on things than everybody else. And I've been guilty of it myself. And that, as I said the other night, living in Nashville, Tennessee, and being in the Southern culture, in the Christian culture, really helped me move beyond that and also the work I've done in emotional intelligence and I think we have to really and the Dharma doesn't do a great job of pointing out in a way that really it's this contempt that we have that's very destructive the Dalai Lama has been on this campaign for 20 years now trying to uh, that we think well anger is the problem greed, hatred and delusion is the problem right yeah those aren't good either but it's really contempt And on the flip side of that, the other thing that blocks, so what does contempt for self look like? Contempt for self looks a lot like shame. And really what it is, it's the enemy to all the Brahma-viharas that we have in our own experience is a, is a, is a felt sense of unworthiness, of undeserving. And I know that for me, a lot of times in my early practice, when I would try to do these Brahma-vihara practices, that's what I would end up feeling into. It's like, oh, I don't deserve this, or I don't, I'm not going to get this. Or... And, 
that's why you would find me in the back of the woods of IMS with my cup of Earl Grey with lots of milk and lots of honey to try to comfort that, that sense. And so we start with that. We just, and we train, we practice. I don't, I don't know that we'll ever, we'll ever get there. But that, that is a mindfulness practice and that's why we start right with, uh, we did the other morning of really trying to bring kindness to our own internal sense of pain. And that pain and metta can coexist. I can be kind and friendly with those that I don't agree with, that I don't see things clearly with. And that's the first of four. I'm not even done yet. Right? And so we try to uh, develop this quality of heart and try to just bring it into as much of the experiences that we have that we can. It's also an attitude of mind on the mindfulness side. I jokingly say this, and I really think it's true, though, but I wish that metta have, would have gone as bonkers as mindfulness has. I wish there was a kindness magazine at the rack at Whole Foods rather than a mindfulness magazine. I think we'd all be better off. Because mindfulness has just been so... It's to the point where I don't think we even know what the hell it means anymore. Right? And when we look at the early discourses, again... The correlation between the Brahma Viharas and the mindfulness practices, they're the same, same, same. They're, no, they're not different. They're all mindfulness practices. They're insight practices. And then when we move into our experience and we see we come into the, the, the pleasure-pain dichotomy, right? we see that we have a, a huge range of unpleasantness and we have, we have agony, agony and ecstasy. We have joy, we have sorrow. And so we, we know that, that that's in the expansive field of our humanness. And as we find ourselves drifting into the world of pain, of sadness, of loss, then that metta actually transforms and takes on and calls to mind this quality of karuna or compassion. It's still metta, but it's a metta that has a more of a caring, more of a holding, more of I see you. And we have to watch out. Even in that practice, we find that there's also near and far enemies. And the near enemy of compassion, something that can look a lot like compassion that's absolutely not compassion, is pity, self-pity. And I think in our culture, we oftentimes confuse those two. And you might... The way that I've noticed this the most vividly is one of the experiences that I find to be the most unbearable up till this day is when I feel like somebody's having pity on me. There's this actually really terrible phrase they say in the Deep South, which is a total embodiment of this, is they say, oh, bless your heart. Which is kind of like, you sorry, you sorry, miserable son of a bitch. <laughs> you know, and it's like, because I, um, I was confused between the two, and, and because a lot of stuff happened to me when I was younger, uh, my sister dying in a car accident, and a lot of death and loss, I always felt like, I don't know if it was true, but I always really disdained and was very uncomfortable and get really angry if I felt like somebody was taking pity on me. And sometimes, 
So pity and compassion can oftentimes look a lot alike. But I don't know if you've been in that experience where you've ever been through something really hard and you feel like somebody's taking pity on you. And it, kind of, it makes me kind of collapse into shame. Right, so we have to be careful. We have to kind of see like, okay, like compassion is, is, a, is really our deep care for that which hurts. And this gets even more complicated because a lot of times we play this negotiation. We talked about this in the group earlier. I used to play this negotiation with my pain and my suffering and say, okay, I'll care about you, but you need to go away. Like, that's the deal with my pain. It's like, I'm going to give compassion to this part of myself and then it's going to scurry off. And I think the thing that makes compassion very difficult is that even when there is compassion, a sense of care, it's still, there's still some ouch. There's just not hatred. There's not aversion. There's not resistance. And so, of course, that's the far enemy of compassion is, uh, is cruelty or hatred. And I think what made it so hard is by the time I started meditating, I was, you know, I was only 18, but in my mind for most of my teen years, hatred was so strong because I just hated the world. I didn't even know what specifically I hated, but I just so didn't want to be here. I wasn't suicidal, thank God. But I just didn't, I was not impressed with any of this. You know? Not at all. And so when we start to kind of... And then we have to be careful too. We have to learn how to bear down and back off when we start to develop compassion. But we can understand that in the, in the, in the whole realm of unpleasantness, of anguish, that, there, that life does have a minor key. A poignancy. And we all have this sorrow. And so as, as a kind of diagnostic tool, the Brahma Vihara is like, can we have this sense of kindness? And the stronger the kindness is, then the stronger the compassion will be. And then we can be in relationship to not just our pain and to others' pain, but we can just be in this Dharma relationship to our experience where we feel as though we have the capacity to be in this experience. I can do this. Yes, is it hard? Yeah, it's hard. I really don't like it. I actually can't stand it. But I can have that kind of resiliency, that kind of... And I think the real word here is courage. Which I think is the Pali translation for the word virya, which is usually sloppily translated as energy. It's really courage. And then, of course, we have everything... Eileen did such a wonderful job discussing around mudita, around gratitude, around joy. Right? And so... um, we also need to pay attention, and that's a mindfulness practice too. To really, mudita, the spirit of mudita, is a willingness to participate in all of the joy and the beauty in the world without any of it needing to be mine. It's that mine. Right? And of course, if it's, then this is what gives rise to uh, the far enemy of mudita, gratitude, which is envy and jealousy. How come them and not me? Right? 
And this is really sad and tragic when we feel envious for the people in our lives that we actually care about. Our friends, our colleagues, somebody that we know gets a job, gets a relationship, gets something that you wanted that they got. And it's like we feel like there's some sort of percentage of joy in the universe and they just got 20%. There's, less, there's like less for all of us. It's like some sort of like crazy game that we play. The, the late Thich Nhat Hanh, who died recently, famously always used to say, happiness is available. Please help yourself to it. There's plenty. It's not like a level system where like, well, he's got this much and she's got that much. Well, there's only like a little bit left. And, and, and someone and I, I was talking about this earlier, a lot of the ways that this manifests in our psychology, in our mind, in our cognition, is comparing. The comparing mind. I look what I have. I look what you have. Hey, wait a minute. That's not fair. How come you got all that? I don't got shit. In fact, I got shit. That's all I got. <laughs> right? So these things... We see them so play out. And, and I think the way that this manifests in the most extreme form in our culture is taking for granted. Right? And if you look at like clinical research, it's very interesting. Happiness research. One of the things I got to do when I was working with Eve Ackman is we, 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 we actually studied a lot of happiness research, which if I could go back and do it again and get a job, I would be a happiness researcher because that sounds like a killer job. You're just in the laboratory studying happiness all day. And the measurement, they say, is happiness is, is not about getting what you want. It's about wanting what you have. Right? And as soon as I get what I want, I don't want it anymore. I want something else. And I have this stockpile of stuff that I, that I have that I want that I don't even pay attention to anymore. Because once I got it, it's gone. It goes on the shelf with all the other stuff I got. And so this, this hit me really, really hard. And, I, and, I, and I, I took a shower earlier today, and I'll never forget it. When I was in the hospital for my motorcycle accident, back in 2016 when I almost died, I was in the IC unit, ICU unit for, I don't know, maybe six weeks, seven weeks without a shower. And when you're in the ICU unit, you know what a shower in the ICU unit is? They come in with kind of room temperature wipes, and you get a wipe-down shower which actually feels pretty good when you haven't had a real shower. Right? And I remember after coming out of my coma, kind of self-induced coma that they put me in, out of, coming out of the fentanyl, getting my wits back about me. I was in the hospital for a couple of days and they brought me over to this facility that I'll never forget called Rancho Las Amigas, which is in Los Angeles, just an unbelievable facility. And I was in there with Sunday morning. It was the day after Trump won the election which I didn't believe happened because I was still on the fentanyl delusional. I was like, Trump's not the president. <laughs> Fucking crazy people. I thought it was funny. They're like, no, dude, he really won. <laughs> and this lovely Mexican woman comes in, the nurse, puts me in this like, basically like mobile tub thing. And she's like, she's like do you want to take a shower? And I was just like, yeah. She wheeled me into this room. I was in this big plastic kind of tub. And I'll never forget when she hit the little button. It was like one of those dishwasher things. And the hot water hit my leg. I started crying, like really crying. It felt so good. And I got this like really good hot, and hot water. How often do you take your hot water for granted? 
Hot water is amazing. Right? But the pressure's not great, you know. <laughs> not, it's too hot. I don't know if you're playing with the thing. But I swear to God, I don't think I've taken a, a shower in the last three years where I didn't remember that moment. It's like deeply embedded. Right? And it's a shower. Like, what's the big deal, right? This is a shower. It's just a cup of coffee. It's just a good meal. And I think that we actually have to work fairly hard. I feel like I have to work very hard to not do that. Right? And that's, that's part of appreciation. You know? And not taking for granted. I mean, we do have it so good. We really do. And, I, and, and Eileen was talking about this when her and I were talking the other day about kind of the practices we wanted to teach and what we thought would be right and appropriate. We both immediately were just like, yeah, mudita, like, this is, this is an under-taught, undervalued, under-emphasized teaching. That's so core. And it's trying to have this appreciation or this gratitude or this gentle joy towards all of the goodness in the world, all of the joy, all of the beauty, all of the pleasure in the world without needing it to be mine. And that's the hard part. And then the other thing to make it even more complicated is what happens to me is I oftentimes find myself feeling guilty that I'm not more grateful. And if I'm honest... I oftentimes look at my life and things I have, I'm like, the feeling of gratitude I have and the thing, I, I feel like I'm, I, I don't, I'm not up where I should, I'm not hitting at the right pitch. But maybe gratitude is actually not a feeling either. I think that's the other thing too with gratitude is we assume that it comes with this like very pleasant uh, feeling. It's supposed to feel good. And I don't know if that's true. I think maybe it's more of a behavior. Or maybe it's so subtle that we need to actually slow down enough to feel into it, to get into a sense of, oh, okay. It's, a, it's actually the most accurate translation from mudita. It's a gentle joy. It's a very gentle. It probably doesn't register at that high of a pitch. Which is why I think we have to calm down and we have to relax and we have to try to we have to find that level. Because the near enemy of mudita is excitation or exuberance. You ever be so excited about something it starts to get annoying? I'm always get anxious. Like, oh my God, I, gotta, I need a break. It's so great, I can't even take it. I mean, we can't. It's the same thing that happened, uh, it happens on retreat a lot too where you're like, the exuberance of samadhi where you're sitting and your body doesn't hurt and you have that thought in your mind that says, I'm fucking totally meditating right now. Like, I just like... And then you get excited and then you, something happens and you, you're like, okay, I'm going to get on my phone and I'm going to book a retreat. You just, you can't take it. And, you, and you're gone. And you blew it. Because you were exuberant. It was too much excitation. You jumped right out of it. I have a three-year-old who does this all the time. He goes to my mom's house. I, I hope, I'm old, but I hope I, I live long enough to be grandparents because grandparents haven't made it in the shade. 
They just give the kid whatever they want, at least in our house. So Kaidi will go into my mom's house and he'll grab a cookie and he'll grab another cookie and he'll have a cookie in each hand and I'll be looking at the tray of cookies and he's like, doesn't have another hand. <laughs> and he can't take it. He gets really mad. He's like, but I fucking want another one. I'm like, dude, you have two cookies. He can't do it. He's like, but there's like seven more. It's like that exuberance, we get that. I didn't teach him that. He came like that. He's obsessed with transformers. And thank God we live where we live because it's like an hour drive to a Target. But he'll, like, he'll go to the Target. He'll grab like six of them and chuck them in the cart and be like, yeah, that's cool. Like, I'm just going to get all six of these. And then we have to have this negotiation of like, maybe six is a lot. Maybe we could get one or two. It's just like, no, man. Like, I decided these are the ones that I want to have. I got them all. And it's just like, and then it becomes very unpleasant for him. And it, it, we, 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 can't, we can't handle it. Right? So we have to kind of get more into that gentle sense of joy. Which is actually very hard. And then lastly, we move into this uh, uh, term equanimity, which is really the full fruition of the heart. Also, if we look at the mindfulness teachings, uh, the mindfulness teachings of the awakening factors, the factors that lead to a full awakening, it starts with mindfulness and it ends with equanimity. The same thing with the Brahma Viharas. It starts with metta, mindfulness, ends with equanimity. So all these practices are all going in the same place. And I, one thing I think that's sort of a drag is I wish there was another word that we had for equanimity. Because equanimity is a word that you really only hear or use in a Dharma context. I've seen a few like therapeutic textbooks that are starting, the word starting to show up in a little bit. But really probably the word that, that's most closely accurate is, is balance. Or in dialectical behavioral therapy, as they do the best job of it, it's both slash and. That captures the idea of equanimity the best. It's bo- everything is both and. Life is both tragic and beautiful. There is both pleasure and pain. There is both joy and there is sorrow. There is praise, there is blame, there is status, there is disgrace. It's both and. And for some reason, the mind doesn't like that so much. It wants one or the other. How was your retreat? It was terrible and amazing. (laughs) That's probably true, accurate. (laughs) And that's how it is. And so the map, this Brahma Vihara heart, is giving us really great tools to relate to the full range of everything that is tragic and traumatic to everything that is joyous and everything that is beautiful and everything in the middle. And that's the full embodiment of the heart that is awake. And so that's not a technique that you learn. Maybe that's part of it. We have practices. We've taught some of them. This is not uh, something that you can just sort of know now. It's not like that. It's a kind of more of an emotional intelligence or even a somatic intelligence. And it's so hard. 
but equanimity have both sides that have the wisdom of being able to see and to understand the complexity of it all. And we have to realize, too, that when we're thinking about things like polarity, tribalism, the things that we see so much in our culture, equanimity is not something that's in the middle. It's not this, another near enemy of equanimity. It's kind of this cold, indifferent, apathetic kind of perspective, which can masquerade as equanimity which many of famous Buddhist teachers are really quite good at. It's like, man, that person's so cool and equanimous. It's like, no, man, they don't give a shit <laughs> at all. And that can really look equanimous and stoic. But equanimity actually can see beyond the binaries. It's, it's so big and like, it sees it for what it is. It sees the tragedy, it sees the beauty, it sees the joy, it sees the sorrow. It's bigger than that. It's not in the middle of that. It's around it. Right? So there's that. And so it's really, this is one of the near enemies. That's some, and they're, all the near enemies are tricky. That's why they're near enemies. And, and so a lot of times I fall into this too because my, my uh, in the John Bowlby sense, my attachment style, I tend to be a little bit dismissive of things. Because I don't want to care too much, because if I care too much, I'm going to get hurt, right? I mean, I love you, but I don't love you that much, because I'm going to get clobbered eventually. And I'm tired of getting clobbered. So I'm going to, you know, be a little bit, which is the last thing I want. Either way, I lose. So there can be that kind of dismissiveness, or that kind of aloofness, or kind of apathetic. And so that brings us back into equanimity also mimics <coughs> that of metta, that cool warmth. The cool warmth. It's like, you know, I'm not cold. I'm not reactive. I care, but I'm, not, I'm also not attached. I don't have an expectation, even though I actually do have an expectation. My teacher, Stephen Smith, does the best explanation of what the actual embodiment of equanimity looks like in moment-to-moment experience. And it's that we show up to our lives, to the challenging. We show up and we take all of our resources, whatever they are, and we put them on the table. We draw from our best resources. We take the high road. And then we suspend all expectation. That's a really hard movement fully showing up with an open heart, with a willingness to help, with a willingness to care, with a willingness to appreciate, and then letting go of any expectation. That's that movement. So there's there's not an agreement here. The Buddha doesn't do agreements. He doesn't do guarantees. He certainly does not do consolation. But what he's saying is that this is, this is the best that we can do. And this, it, this is a, of a muti, a liberation that is of a chitta quality, of a, of a heart mind, of a behavior, of an integrity, of a being in the world. And then we get to be, you know, when we talk about refuge, 
A lot of times people talk about taking refuge, which is fine, but I think actually when we do this kind of work, what you do is you become refuge for somebody else. You become the kind, friendly person that people go to. You become the compassionate person that other people can lean on. You become the uh, embodiment of mudita, so the friend who has the great success wants to go tell you their great success and good fortune story because they know you're not going to be jealous and envious because you're going to participate in that. You get to be that person. Don't you want to be the person that people bring the good news to? Or do you want to be the person, oh, don't tell them, they're just going to be pissed. They find out I won the lottery. <laughs> oh, I'm so happy you won $10 million on the lottery. So happy for you. <laughs> so we, 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 we actually... <coughs> we forget in the relational sense is we get to become that person for somebody else, for many many people. And that is a great expression of, of generosity, of dana sila bhavana, the cultivation of generosity and goodwill. And there's actually a happiness to be found in that that has really nothing to do with you getting what you want. Getting what you want typically doesn't, that formula doesn't really work for many people. So we can, can we learn to want what we have? And one thing, I'll close with this, one of the things that I learned years ago from really my first Dharmandor, I really believe, was Daniel Goleman because I grew up down the street from him. And he used to always say to me, he said, happy, he said the happiness that you're going to have in your life is going to come solely through the relationships that you have with other people. Period. That's it. The relationship I have with myself and the relationship I have with others. Of course, having a decent car and a meal and a nice help, the house doesn't hurt, but ultimately, at the end of the day, what it's going to boil down to is not only what is it like in the privacy quality of your own mind as you sit with yourself? And what is it like, can you be inside out? And, and are you even lucky and fortunate enough to find other people who are willing to sit in the fire with you and say, yeah, me too? And if you have like two or three of those people, you're doing, you're doing great. So I offer that for your reflection. Thank you for listening and being with me this evening. And I just really want to just also express my gratitude for all of you being here. This is a great joy. Even though we haven't got a chance to really talk a whole lot. <laughs> um, so let's just sit for a few minutes. <laughs>